0: Here's a scenario, and maybe some of this will sound familiar. Let's say you're working on a small project with a tight deadline. You've been plugging away at it all day, though you're not as far along as you'd hoped. You figure you can get up early and finish the project tomorrow morning before the kids get up. Then the morning comes.
1: Now that warm front will bring some heavy showers this morning and the day, so don't forget your umbrella. You're tired.
0: You hit the snooze button a couple of times. But still, you manage to get up early enough to get cracking on that project. You fire up the coffee maker, but you forgot to get beans yesterday. You dig around for something caffeinated. Tea it is. Now, where's that kettle? As you're sitting down at your desk, you remember your son has soccer practice this morning. It's all right. Your spouse will drop him off on the way to work.
1: Now turning to your morning commute, that accident on the I-80 means that traffic is crawling this morning. Okay,
0: traffic is bad this morning. You'll have to leave a little earlier than usual. But you've still got time. You dive into your project. Right, the dog needs to be walked. And just as you get back into the house... Hey,
1: honey, do you mind taking the kids into school this morning? I've got my class.
0: Ah, and before you know it, It's 7.45, you're corralling the kids and all the homework that needed to be checked yesterday, and now it's 8 a.m., and you're going to be late for work, and you haven't even touched the project that's due today. How did this happen? It's not like you don't know how hectic mornings can be. So why did you expect this morning to be any different? Today, we're going to dig into the reasons why the best-laid plans don't always track with reality. At home, at work... Or in outer space. Two, one,
1: zero, and lift off.
0: I'm Katie Milkman, and this is Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. It's a show about the subtle forces that can push you in one direction or another when you're trying to make decisions, often without you even realizing it. We bring you high stakes stories that illustrate these hidden forces that can shift decisions. And then we dive into the science behind our occasionally irrational behavior. Finally, we try to give you some tools to fight back against behavioral traps. All to help you avoid costly mistakes.
2: My very first launch to orbit was on STS-50, that was back in 1992. So I can remember the solid rocket boosters lighting, seeing this bright glow outside the windows, a golden glow from the flames of the boosters, and then the push in my back as we lifted off the pad. That's
0: NASA astronaut Ken Bowersox. We're going to hear more from him in a bit. But first, some context on the project we're looking at, the International Space Station.
3: Well, there, there were space station meetings as early as 1951, if you can believe that.
0: This is Robert Godwin. He's written extensively on the history of spaceflight, including the book Outpost in Orbit, which he co-authored, about the International Space Station.
3: And then the first real NASA uh, gathering of the space station committee happened in 1960. So that tends to be way earlier than most people realize. Of course, it, it wasn't until President Reagan in, in the early 1980s announced that the United States was going to build a space station, that people really became aware of it. We can follow our dreams to distant stars, living and working in space for peaceful economic and scientific gain. Tonight, I am directing NASA to develop a permanently manned space station and to do it within a decade.
0: That was President Ronald Reagan from his 1984 State of the Union address. It was official. America had an aspirational plan to build a low-Earth orbit space station. It was to be called Freedom. But this wasn't NASA's first space station. Skylab had previously launched into orbit on May 14th of 1973.
3: Skylab was a good testing ground, and that was what was called a single launch space station where they could put it up with one rocket and then man it for, for months
0: at a time. The entire Skylab was launched on one rocket, The new space station was going to be a larger, modular station assembled over multiple missions by an international consortium. That consortium would eventually include the Soviet Union. The Soviets also had prior experience with space stations. Their Salyut program launched seven space stations into orbit between 1971 and 1991. And they launched the core module of the Mir space station in February of 1986. Six additional modules for Mir were sent into orbit over the next decade. So while the new space station would be an ambitious and complex undertaking, it wasn't unprecedented. However, international cooperation on this type of project was certainly unique. One of
3: the interesting stories about the beginning of the international cooperation on the space station was that uh, the engineers in the Soviet Union, who had an enormous amount of experience with space stations, their system was such that they would keep their uh, plans and ideas to themselves.
0: The Soviet engineers were hesitant to share all of their expertise, for fear of being made redundant on the project. So they only shared information with a select few American engineers.
3: And so they they literally took the Americans into a closet, like a small storage room in, in Moscow, and pulled out their plans for their advanced space station designs. And they were on big rolled up pieces of paper where only certain people could get to them so that they
0: were not making themselves redundant. So cooperation was going to be more challenging than expected. But planning moved ahead for several years. The project was hampered by delays and cost overruns, as well as the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. But it was the arrival of the Clinton administration in 1992 that presented the first major challenge to the project.
3: President Clinton was elected, and he'd run on a platform of, you know, cutting back budgets and so on, and NASA were told that they had 10 weeks to completely redesign the space station, which had nine years' work into it at that point. So nine years of work uh, went out the window, and they were given two and a half months to come up with something else
0: two-and-a-half months. NASA and their international partners scrambled to put together a more cost-effective approach. They began a new partnership with the Russian Federation that would combine the Mir and the Freedom programs. But even with these measures, it remained a challenge to design and build space infrastructure on time and on budget.
3: One of the most expensive problems on the ground was the, uh, the construction of the first Node-1 module which was being built uh, in the United States. And when they pressurized it, they realized that there was a fundamental design flaw in the system, and they had to basically start building it from scratch again. So that pushed you know, the timeline back immediately by at least a year.
0: There were other technical problems and setbacks too. There were political and language challenges in dealing with the international partners, Russia, Japan, Canada, and the 11 member nations of the European Space Agency. But finally,
3: the very first module to be launched to the International Space Station was the Zario, which was the Russian power supply module, uh, which was launched in 1998.
0: On the surface, the American space shuttle program seemed ideally suited to service the construction of this multi-stage, modular space station. Shuttles were reusable and substantially less expensive on a per-mission basis than the previously canceled Apollo rocket program. But Robert Godwin argues that this may not have been the most cost-effective approach after all.
3: It seems to me that they could have done this a whole lot cheaper, quicker, and easier if they hadn't canceled the Saturn V rocket, which was the giant booster that sent men to the moon. That thing had such an enormous lifting power. It could have launched the entire mass of the space station in probably three launches, maybe two. Uh, as opposed to however many it's been now. I think it was 35 or something that it took to actually build it with the shuttle.
0: So, ironically, using the shuttle would be more expensive in the long run. And because more flights were required, there were more opportunities for things to go wrong. Now
2: pressure water system armed. T-minus 10. Nine. Eight. Yeah, I'm Ken Bowersox, a retired NASA astronaut. Um, Worked for about 19 years at NASA. Um, I flew five times in space, four different space shuttle missions. And then on my fifth mission, I got to live aboard the International Space Station during Expedition 6.
0: Ken has spent roughly seven months in space. Four shuttle flights that were a week and a half to two weeks long and a five and a half month stay aboard the space station.
2: Part of our job was to do science experiments while we were there, either on ourselves or uh, on other people or uh, with different apparatus that was available uh, on board the space station.
0: Ken was also involved in delivering and installing an addition to the station.
2: We also brought a major segment, uh, one of the uh, truss segments that holds the solar arrays in the payload bay of the space shuttle that we arrived in. And we helped to outfit that while we were there.
0: Time aboard the station is very regimented. Astronauts would teleconference regularly with ground crew to coordinate tasks and operations. There's one meeting Ken will never forget.
2: Well, well, back then uh, on the International Space Station, every Saturday, there would be um, a time when the crew would uh, tag up with the ground control team in sort of a preparatory conference for the week ahead. On this day, when it came time to do that conference, we didn't hear anything from the ground. And that was de- that was weird. So I called the ground and said, hey, uh, we're gonna do the c- conference today. And they said, stand by. And all we heard was a standby, you know, which was very different. A little while later, the um, head of the Johnson Space Center, uh, General Jefferson Howell, came on the radio and said, hey, guys, I've got to tell you something. We've lost Columbia. Uh, And uh, we were all in shock, right, when we heard that.
4: My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At nine o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our Space Shuttle Columbia.
0: On February 1st of 2003, Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated as it re-entered Earth's atmosphere. All seven crew members aboard were killed.
2: First, you think about the, the people that were lost and what they may have experienced, and then you, often you, you put yourself in their, in their place, thinking, well, when would that happen to me? After the loss of STS-107, there was concern that another accident might happen if we were to launch another shuttle.
0: NASA would postpone the shuttle program while it studied the disaster and implemented new safety protocols. But there were still three astronauts orbiting the Earth at 17,000 miles an hour. They needed a way home.
2: And so the Russian partners and the folks in the U.S. came together and decided that it would be okay for our crew to bring home our emergency vehicle, the, the Soyuz
0: TMA-1. Ken Bowersox and the rest of the crew on Expedition 6 would return to Earth in the Soyuz re-entry module that was affixed to the space station for this type of emergency. Yes. To they, they made to a harrowing return in what's called a ballistic entry.
2: The bottom line is on a ballistic entry, you come in on a steeper angle and you decelerate faster. And so what that means is you end up landing short of the target. You know, you don't, you don't make it all the way to the target. So as we were coming down, we eventually went below the, the radio horizon, and we couldn't talk to them anymore, and everybody on the ground was confused. They'd been able to talk to us, and then all of a sudden they couldn't, and they didn't realize where we were. And so all our folks in mission control, they thought we, everything was normal, and then suddenly they couldn't talk to us, and, and that was kind of unsettling. And then the shoot opened. <laughs> And thankfully thankfully for us the shoot came out everything was just just great and 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 we landed at home in kazakhstan the thought of being on Columbia hit me a lot later after we'd been back from the space station for a few months um, i got a chance to go and look at the debris that was collected from the investigative effort for the accident and i got to see the window that the commander looks out of on entry. And just being there and knowing I had sat behind that window frame before and seeing the damage from the heat and imagining what it was like was just, oh gosh, it just just stopped me in my tracks.
0: This is all a reminder of the incredible complexity and danger of space travel and of the bravery of the astronauts involved. Losing the space shuttle Columbia was the most terrible thing that had happened during the course of building this international space station. But it was not a completely unforeseen possibility. NASA had experienced the Challenger space shuttle disaster in 1986, so the new shuttle losses were a real risk. Though everyone involved recognized the risk of a shuttle failure, the Columbia tragedy had a massive impact on the space station project. Here's Robert Godwin again.
3: Losing the Columbia actually delayed launches entirely for a couple of years. Nobody was going to launch anything until they'd done a complete breakdown of exactly what happened, tried to figure it out. And that meant going and picking up all the pieces.
0: The original timeline for constructing the International Space Station had shuttles going up nearly every four weeks. Now, after a two-year delay, the shuttle would only launch two to three times per year.
3: And, of course, that pushed back the timeline for the space station more than anything.
0: That original monthly launch schedule was an incredibly ambitious target.
3: That ambition, that go fever, really ended up causing these terrible accidents to happen and people to lose their lives, which then delayed the entire program and caused the International Space Station to cost more money and take longer than was predicted.
0: The Columbia disaster drove costs on the already mind-bogglingly expensive project even higher as increased safety standards meant more complex paper trails, additional layers of equipment redundancy, and substantially longer project timelines. Of course, safety should be paramount, and space exploration is incredibly valuable to humanity. It's interesting to compare the planned cost and schedule to what actually happened.
3: When they first proposed the space station, when President Reagan announced that they were gonna build it, they thought at the time that they might be able to do this for maybe 10, $15 billion. And of course, by the time it was actually completed, Um, It's in the much more than that, tens of billions of dollars, if not a hundred billion dollars. They were hoping to actually complete the space station by 2005, and they didn't actually complete it until the last shuttle flight in, in 2011.
0: Six years behind schedule, and that's not even the original schedule, and tens of billions of dollars over budget. It's the most expensive single structure ever built and the most complex. Despite the cost... It's a remarkable achievement.
3: Today, the thing with its solar panels deployed, it's the size of a football field now. There's an entire Japanese laboratory on board. There's a European laboratory. There are all of these docking modules that connect everything together. There's this inflatable module that was launched to be uh, tested out for a space hotel. It's flying in this really tough environment in low-Earth orbit, radiation hitting it all the time, constantly subject to the potential hazards of meteors and so forth. And yet it's been done on this cooperation agreement between all of these different countries, all people speaking different languages, having to make different technologies work together. It is just an incredible accomplishment.
0: Rob Godwin is the co-author of Outposts in Orbit, Ken Bower Sox is a veteran of five space shuttle launches and an extended stay aboard the International Space Station. I have links in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast, where you'll also be able to find all of our past episodes, transcripts, and bonus content. What I want to explore from this story is the wildly inaccurate estimates of what the International Space Station would cost and how long it would take to build. In a 2001 report to the NASA Advisory Council, the cost of construction had grown from an original estimate of $17.4 billion to over $30 billion. The latest construction cost estimate hovers at around $100 billion. Adjusted for inflation, That's about $75 billion in cost overruns. That's pretty mind-boggling. In hindsight, it's easy to point to all the places where NASA and its partners made mistakes. It's easy to see why they blew through their budgets and timelines and to say they should have known better. But this tendency to be over-optimistic about time and money doesn't just happen with engineers on large and complex projects. It affects projects of pretty much any kind. I want to bring you back to earth with a simpler demonstration. We had a couple of people sit down with a construction set made for kids and we asked them to estimate how long it would take them to complete the assembly of a toy. They had detailed instructions which included illustrations of the completed project. Notice their estimates as you listen.
1: You're making me build stuff?
0: Do I get to play with toys? Oh yeah.
1: So, today, what we're doing is we're having you play with an educational building engineering toy. So, we're going to get you to build a blender out of okay. all these gears and rods and connectors. <laughs> all right. It looks like there are eight steps, but each step has a variety of things that have to come together. How long do you think it's going to take you to build this blender?
0: This is going to be interesting. I don't, um, I think it's going to take me seven minutes.
1: It's going to take me. 10 minutes. All right, I'm going to set a timer so you can go ahead and get started. 12 of these rods.
0: How old are kids supposed to be for this?
1: Uh, I, I believe the, the recommended age is 8 years old and up. Yeah. How are you feeling about your time quote so far? Oh, I feel like I undershot it. But I'm optimistic that I'm going to get really close to it.
0: little tiny one's not fitting quite right
1: what step are you on
0: i'm on one (laughs) i feel like it looks wrong we'll find it won't we
1: well this is just not gonna happen has it been 10 minutes
0: i think that my timer's going off now does it mean i have to stop
1: so let's review Mm -hmm. how far did you get
0: Um, I got to step four of eight.
1: I got three steps in out of eight. So why did you think you could do it in ten minutes? Because I thought, just looking at it really quickly, it looked like the pieces were going to come together real quick. If you could go back, knowing how long it took you to get to uh, where you are in the building process, how long would you have estimated? It would take at least half an hour, I think.
0: If I want to be safe, I'd say maybe like twenty minutes...
1: Are you surprised by how little you got done in, in the 10 minutes that you thought it was going to take you to complete this? In retrospect, no. I realize how dumb I was to say 10 minutes is all I would need to do this.
0: I always underestimate how long it takes me to do stuff.
1: And why do you think that is? Why do you do that?
0: Because I think I can do more than I can. Okay. So this project was not exactly rocket science, or space station science. But notice that our participants did exactly the same thing that the International Space Station engineers did, just on a smaller scale. They substantially underestimated how long it would take to complete a project. And this isn't just a staged example. This phenomenon has been documented time and again across dozens, if not hundreds, of research studies. It's the same thing that burned our imaginary character at the start of the show. Humans tend to be overly optimistic about the time, energy, effort, coordination, and expense it will take to complete a task or a project. And they tend to ignore the what-ifs, the unforeseen, the unimagined, the unconsidered aspects of a project. College students consistently underestimate how long it will take to finish a term paper. Construction contractors often underestimate how long a renovation will take. Businesses, governments, nonprofits, are all prone to miss the mark when estimating schedules. This happens even when we aren't rewarded for shaving costs and have every reason to make accurate estimates. But why? Research points to errors in the way we predict the future. In the late 1970s, Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman proposed a behavioral bias they called the planning fallacy. Their work was later extended by Kahneman and his colleague Dan Lavallo, and the bias was defined as the tendency to underestimate the time, costs, and risks of future actions and at the same time, overestimate the benefits of the same actions. I've invited Bradley Stotts, a professor at the University of North Carolina's Kenan-Flagler Business School, to help me get into the details of this bias and how to avoid falling prey to it. Hey, Brad, thanks so much for joining me.
4: Of course, Katie. Glad to be here today.
0: Okay, so let's start out by talking about what the planning fallacy is. Could you describe for us what is this bias and where does it come from?
4: Sure. So with the planning fallacy, you know, we're talking about a kind of an optimism bias, but it's not just optimism. It's that we underestimate how long a future task is going to take, even when we have knowledge that past events took longer than planned. So it's not just that we're overly optimistic. We, we should know better, and yet and yet we don't.
0: What causes this? Why is it that we should know better, we have the data available from past events, and then we keep messing up?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. So it's back to this challenge of kind of an inside-outside view that uh, we have our own experience and we really get caught up in that experience and we don't think about the broader picture. And so it it shows up in a few different ways. Um, One is that kind of we focus on just that one activity or that project. So think about kind of taking home work for the weekend instead of recognizing that we have to make dinner or we have to go to a kid's baseball game. We just think about the work itself. So, you know, yes, I'll get all of this done. Ten pages written, uh, and instead we get one. Even though we know that's all we ever get written, um, we also kind of tend not to really draw on our own experience. That you know, when we're estimating how long something's going to take, we we look forward, and ironically, you know, we should be looking backwards. We should be thinking about well, what did what did things look like in the past? I think the final point is is one of attribution, right? And so, you know, this challenge of, uh, as we're trying to figure out things, how much of it was me versus the situation. Um, and so even if we think about those prior events, you know, we say, well, they were special, they were unlucky, or, you know, I won't have that same problem. And uh, we kind of discount and, and throw it away.
0: Could you give an example of a time that the planning fallacy has affected your own judgment?
4: Well, so I'll so give... um, that are related. So so we have a friend and co-author named Craig Fox. And uh, when we were talking to him about this one time, uh, he brought up how he had to have some renovation work done and he got an estimate from a contractor. And at the end of that, he was wise enough to ask the contractor, well, how often are you right? And the guy kind of looked up the sky and thought about it uh, and then uh, said, well, never. Uh, And so, you know, and yet Craig still went on with the work. Uh, Fast forward, you know, several years, kind of we had our own big, Home improvement project uh, that we asked, you know, how long it would take, and he came back to us, uh, the contractor, with a six month estimate. Um, sadly, not only did I fail to you know, kind of draw on Craig's lesson of asking him for some sort of range, we then kind of proceeded as if six months was actually how long it was going to take, knowing full well, or at least we should have, uh, that we would blow through that limit. Uh, ended up being kind of nine, ten months uh, over budget as well in the whole process.
0: <laughs> I love that you did home contracting example. Those are. All too familiar. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Okay, so let's talk about research. So, could you tell me a little bit about some of the research studies that you find most compelling on the planning fallacy?
4: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the initial kind of introduction of this, which was uh, Kahneman-Tversky in 1979, what's interesting is they actually introduced it you know, with a simple anecdote, uh, a story of one of them on a curriculum committee for high school curriculum. Um, and in that, they were estimating how long the project would take. Kind of everyone on the committee said a, a year and a half to two and a half years. Um, then uh, uh, one of them was smart enough to say, well, hold on, have, have we ever done something like this before? Uh, and uh, kind of the experts, said, well, yes, and 40% of the time, it never finishes. When it actually finishes, it's seven to 10 years. Uh, and uh, in their case, it ended up taking about eight years. So they fell kind of right in the middle of that distribution. Uh, and so that really sets it up nicely. Uh, in terms of you know, other researchers who've been active, uh, Roger Bueller and, and Dale Griffin have been particularly prolific um, in documenting the planning fallacy um, and, and really highlighting how it shows up again and again. One other project I'd highlight that I found really interesting uh, was thinking about kind of individual versus group uh, decision-making. And, and so we might think that a group could help regulate us, um, but what it actually found was when they brought the group together, the group became even more optimistic uh, as it kind of moved towards uh, you know, the kind of improved um, guesses or faster guesses as, no, that won't be a problem here. Uh, and so the, the bias even extended compared to just having individuals do things by themselves.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. And Brad, of course, since we've worked on one project together (laughs) that was related to the planning fallacy, I can't resist the temptation to ask you to talk a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at this idea of kind of what we called a team scaling fallacy, this challenge of we increasingly underestimate task completion time as the team size grows. Uh, And so really the project came from an observation by Fred Brooks, chief architect of the IBM System 360 project, Uh, who uh, wrote the book, The Mythical Man Month. Uh, And in that book, he has something known as Brooks Law, where he says adding people to a late project makes it later. And so the the key idea that we had was that when we look at the impact of bigger teams, we think a lot about the gains from adding people, uh, but we don't think about the coordination losses that we're going to incur. And so it's kind of a, a group planning fallacy, basically. So, in our study, we actually took a couple of different approaches to understand this. Um, In the research lab, we had individuals estimate how long a task would take for teams of size 2 and teams of size 4. What we did was we had folks build a Lego spaceship of all things, so it was very well structured. So, then we had the data on how long it took, and while the four person teams were quicker, if you looked at the total person minutes that they put into the project, not surprisingly, it was higher. Right? They didn't finish in 10 minutes versus 20. Um, It was something in between. Um, And so then we had people estimate this. How long did they think a four-person team would take in that total person minutes compared to the two-person? And what we see is that while they adjusted a little bit, they didn't adjust nearly enough. And so I think it's an interesting element that the planning fallacy is not just, you know, looking at a simple task, how long is this going to take me? But as we expand it out and we think about kind of other dimensions, in this case, team size, the real challenges that introduces.
0: Brad, you know, This is obviously a really pernicious bias. What can we do to help people avoid falling prey to it?
4: So I think there are at least four things that we can think about doing. Um, The first and one of the oldest is looking at unpacking the work. That if we take whatever it is we're estimating, break it down into smaller subcomponents, And this really helps us focus on each of those individual pieces as well as how they fit together. Um, the second thing is, is using other people, but using them in a productive manner. So I, there's a chance when we use a group that we can kind of bias each other and make it worse. Instead, um, we can bounce you know, these ideas off of someone. When we share with them how long we think it's going to take, you know, we can ask them, you know, what's wrong with this forecast? Why might I be too optimistic in, in how I'm approaching it? Um, the third is, is trying to explicitly call out how long those other classes have taken and uh, those other projects have taken. Um, This is sometimes known as reference class forecasting. Uh, And so the idea is that, you know, you come up with the distribution of comparable projects, you look at how long, you know, from quickest to slowest other things have taken, and then you justify where you are going to sit within uh, that distribution. And so the nice part of that is if you show, well, it typically takes, you know, um, say it's a a big project, you know, one year to four years, and we think we're going to do it in nine months, well, immediately you've got a problem. If you think, you know, well, we'll be the 12... A 12-month, the one-year project, you, know, you have to justify why are you better than 95% of the other projects. Um, the last thing that I would say is, is you really want to identify the challenges. What are the things that are going to get in the way? Because that's what we often miss with planning fallacy. Um, even though we know others face those challenges, we won't.
0: I'm thinking about your home renovation project yep. where you misestimated how long it would take And I'm wondering if you could use that as an example and sort of walk a listener through how you would use those four solutions to improve your own judgment on the forecasting of how long your home renovation project would take. You know,
4: I think a great way to talk about, you know, how we might do better is to to go back to, you know, our addition of a basement at our house. Uh, And so there, when uh, the contractor came back to us with uh, kind of the six-month estimate, we could have started first by unpacking the work. Getting him to share, okay, how long is each of these pieces going to take? And in that unpacking, we likely would have helped him uh, to recognize uh, that uh, he was being overly optimistic. Uh, as certainly, we would have helped ourselves. Um, second is that we should have gone and talked to others. Uh, you know, it's not hard at a cocktail party to get folks uh, to tell you their horror stories of renovations. You know, I've I've yet to meet the person who finished you know a month early and twenty percent under budget. And so that would have helped us kind of adjust that timing up, realizing it wasn't going to be 6 months more like you know 8 9 you know 12 15 etc um Related to that is the idea of reference class forecasting, and that's sitting down and looking at comparable projects and understanding either if you have the detail, how long did these projects take, or if you don't have that detail, you could at least look at how much did they run over by, you know, so what should we realistically be kind of adding in as a buffer? Um, And then the fourth thing is being a little bit explicit around, you know, what are the different challenges? What are the things that could get in the way? And as you start to think through that, you realize, oh, the permitting process takes longer oh, a sub contractor was going to have this problem. And in our case, I think all of those would have pushed us up at least 50% in uh, the six-month basement project.
0: I love that. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely,
4: Katie. It's my pleasure.
0: Brad Stotts is a professor of operations at the Kenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina. He's also the author of the book, Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive. I've got a link in the show notes and at schwab.com slash podcast. The planning fallacy and the overconfidence that drives it can affect many of your financial decisions, like putting together a realistic retirement plan. That's why Schwab also produces the podcast Financial Decoder. It's designed for people who want to make better decisions with their money. Mark Reapy hosts the show. He's the head of the Schwab Center for Financial Research. Mark and his guests dissect the financial choices you might be facing, and they offer tips to mitigate the impact of biases on your financial life. You can find it at schwab.com slash financial decoder, or wherever you listen to podcasts. One of the antidotes to the planning fallacy that Brad Stotts mentioned, but that we didn't include in the interview, was to use what psychologist Gary Klein calls a pre-mortem. Maybe you've heard of a post-mortem in medicine. It's a process that allows health professionals to assess what caused a patient's death. The thing is, everyone benefits except the patient. According to Klein, a pre-mortem comes at the beginning of a project rather than at the end, so that the project can be improved rather than autopsied. The pre-mortem requires a funny assumption about the patient, your project. It requires you to imagine that it's already failed, and then you have to ask, what most likely went wrong? Your task, and the task of your team members, is then to generate plausible reasons for the project's failure. With this hypothetical but realistic information, you can make better plans that account for more variables, and you're less likely to exhibit the planning fallacy, or at least you'll hopefully be slightly less over-optimistic about how quickly you can complete the project in question. I hope you've enjoyed this season of Choiceology. We'll be on a bit of a break for the summer, but we'll be back with new episodes on September 2nd, assuming everything goes according to our very well-thought-out plan. So stay tuned and stay subscribed. If you've enjoyed the show, tell a friend or colleague and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and other platforms. Reviews are always much appreciated. And if you like this episode, you might enjoy revisiting our very first episode of the show on overconfidence, a pernicious bias that contributes mightily to the planning fallacy. I'm Katie Milton. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in September.
1: For important disclosures, see the show notes or visit schwab.com slash podcast.